Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host and CIA operative, Hank. I prefer doctor. I'm just a doctor, and I like to help uh, the poor and those that have bug egg sacs inside of their teeth. And occasionally smoke a little crack. Every now and again, you gotta cut the edge. You know, being a doctor is incredibly hard, and I learned in med school that there's nothing better than crack. But I, uh, in recent years, uh, I've, well, I'm, I'm turning into a vegan now, because that's the hip thing to do. So I only do vegan crack, which is cocaine. <laughs> you mind if I hit that? Is that cool? And he doesn't just, like, take a little baby hit. The guy takes a whopper of a hit. We're talking about Bug. two or three. Yeah, we'll whatever. talk about this later. Uh, 2006's <laughs> Bug is, is going to get brought up. But, man, you know what? If I was a doctor slash CIA agent, I'd smoke crack. Why not? What else is there to do? It hasn't been making these fuckers go crazy for the last 90 minutes. Was it the crack or was it Uncle Sam? I think it's Michael Shannon in your presence. But before we get into that, we have to He's do your recently house. seen. And I will start it off, and I'm not going to do a recently seen this week. I'm going to do a, a plug. I'm going to do a something you need to do for your own benefit in your own life. And that is buy a goddamn Blu-ray projector. It's the shit. Oh my god, um, I got one last week. Black Friday sale. Wasn't expensive, it was like 75 bucks. And the thing is goddamn amazing. Um, you definitely I always have, thought, you've definitely been making me jealous this last week. Well, like, I, I set it up, I put a shelf on the wall, I painted one of my walls white, and you don't really need that much room. I've got about 15 feet to work with so that's plenty to make it a nice size screen that's you know an entire wall and i've just been watching old shit like i watched dawn of the dead day of the dead all you know all of these classics that i've never really been able to watch in the theater before and it changes things it really does because the one good thing about the projector that i have anyway it is HD, blah, 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 but since it's projector on a white surface, you're still going to get some interference and, you know, a little bit of change in the picture. It's not crystal clear like a television. A lot of people say, why well, I got a big-ass television? It's completely different because it really does add that film grain of a projected image back to a, a movie, even if it's Blu-ray quality. It it's looks funny like you say this, though. It, and it, it, that's kind of the amazing part about it is that you put... It puts all that back into it. We've had arguments before where I have insisted certain things just have to be watched on a big screen, and you've gone, no, it, you just got to watch it. But there really is a difference with certain things. Not everything, and it's not like, 
Tarantino or David Lynch, you, know, you gotta watch it on a big screen. There's a lot of just stuff that looks better. Like they're just even trying the both movies that we're gonna be talking about later would look absolutely amazing on a big screen. I'd love to Thank see you. the French connection on the big screen. Just there's so much stuff. To live and die in LA would be great on the big screen. Um oh, keep naming Friedkin movies, why don't I? Like uh, one <laughs> of the things I did watch was I watched um Fulci City of the Living Dead, and I have never experienced a Fulci movie like this before because when you do have it on TV, no matter how big your TV is, once you project it and it's larger than life and it's huge like that, and especially in a, albeit a fairly small room in a house, and you're all encompassed by this image. Well, so too, it makes all the Fulci. Yeah. You have you use the sound bar too, though. That's something you left out. You have kind of a surround sound feature going on. So that's a oh, big I, key to do. It's a sound bar, man. It ain't 5.1. I mean, it's. It's, it's not 5.1, right. but yours was impressive. You you actually got me to buy a sound bar after watching a couple movies with you, and it was like, wow, this is part of the experience. Or shit. Uh, any speakers that are included with the flat screen that you buy are going to be garbage, and that's because they have to make the screen so goddamn thin at this point. They've got to put the cheapest, smallest speakers into a TV. So they're all tinny. They all sound like shit. None of them have any bass. Get some sort of sound bar sound, you know, just get a little bit better sound. It, it helps tremendously. And with the projector, like, it's really strange because with, like, especially horror movies, because I watched Dawn of the Dead, you can always step back from it when it's on a television because you're still larger than the imagery. You can you kind of get a grip on the fourth wall. The for well, I mean the the non-reality of it all. Because, well, I mean, just know, using it as a term because that's what's separating you and the the screen that you can turn it off, walk away. You're sizable. It's this wall that is not broken, but now the wall's gone. Now it's I'm in a room, a small room, surrounded by the imagery of the of the artist, the director. So it's just. It, I mean, like with Dawn of the Dead, it was just kind of like, okay, I see why people flip their shit back in the 70s with this because Dawn of the Dead, especially at the beginning, is an assault. And with at home on a television screen, it doesn't feel, you don't get the real feelings of the chaos that's going on in the first 20 minutes of Dawn of the Dead. But once you were surrounded by that, it really does give you like a, an odd feeling. And I've seen Dawn of the Dead hundreds of times at this point. And I've never really experienced like this before because it, it kind of a, more emotionally hit me just because of how all encompassing that image is. So. For all the film dorks out there, I won't say film buff because I hate that goddamn term. But if you're really into movies, you're really into film, and you have a little bit of room to spare and a can of white paint and a hundred dollars or whatever to buy a projector, do that shit. It will change your movie going experience. I don't even have to go to the like the art house theater anymore because this screen is about as big as the one they have in the art house at this point. So who gives a shit? I'll just wait. I'll wait till it comes on in VOD, and I'll just—it's Roku ready for fuck's sakes. I don't even have to hook it up to a DVD player. I can just play Netflix on this goddamn thing. I watched Nailed It, larger than life. Goddamn it! <laughs> so you, you gotta spice it up. You gotta throw on something moody. You know, some uh, some Herzog, maybe uh, something you know really depressing like uh, Forrest Gump. Aguirre is on Prime right now, and it's already in the queue, ready to go. Ooh, Nosferatu could be big fun. Screen. That'd be a uh, good one. Just a lot of even Night of the Living Dead was an experience because it's just it's it really does make everything feel a lot differently. It can bring new perspective to things that you've seen over and over and over again. 
maybe when you finally break in and watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you can do it on the big screen because I don't think as a home release that movie is going to be as much fun at all. Oh. Well, you can go fuck yourself. Uh, you got to see it eventually. I don't have to see it. I still haven't seen Inglorious Bastards. If you I compulsively want to see every movie ever made, eventually it'll bother you. Um, I will say, though, I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I it did not make me want to go back and watch Inglorious Bastards or Hateful Eight, which I also have not seen. So, you know, I'm not on the, uh, the, the, the train here, but I did enjoy it. I, I like Brad Pitt. He's ruggedly handsome. I haven't been back to the theater since Kill Bill 2. So if that tells you anything in my relationship with Tarantino, then... I will say on that note, I, it, whatever his next thing is, I don't know if I'll be as riveted to go see it, but there was just maybe something about the marketing and you know the punches he pulled with the marketing. It seemed fun. I bought in, whatever. This week, I also bought in to watching another movie, Darlin from 2019, written and directed by Pollyanna McIntosh, based on characters created by Jack Ketchum and Lucky McKee, comes from initially Jack Ketchum's offspring. Then you've got the woman. Now you've got Darlin. And Darlin, the woman and Darlin, the youngest daughter from the absolutely wretched, sociopathic, strange family that had kidnapped the feral woman in the last movie, she's pregnant. The woman drops her off at a hospital to have the baby. She gets brought into normal life. We pull in this obvious, you know, got to make a statement about the Catholic Church, which, yeah, you know, they fuck kids. So there's this whole kid fucking Catholic thing. And then the woman becomes a mute Charlie Bronson with a bunch of very, very butch homeless women gets a gun. It, if you can tell where I'm going with this, it's just bad. It's just going downhill as I struggle to even talk about what's going on. Now, Jack Ketchum died while this was going, being made, being produce so he is a producer and lucky mckee is a producer those two things alone you know would definitely be a pull i really like pollyanna mcintosh so that was my pull she wrote and directed this how exciting a lot of the cast is walking dead people uh it looks nice it's just senseless it, it, it's a horrible poor ending to uh, an otherwise pretty cool series uh something that was different and very shocking the woman Visually looks good. I'm not a big fan of that movie in general. I like it. I will. I'll give it a high rating. We were discussing this earlier. I'd give it a three, but something like Darlin, maybe a one and no cult points. It, using wow. even Jack Ketchum's name, you did absolutely. The entire movie wasn't even looking at my watch. It was more like, God, you had so much to work with and you just I didn't want to. It should have been something. This very well could have been called something different and been different characters and no one would have gone, well, God, it's Pollyanna McIntosh, totally can't get over the woman. It, I feel would have been respected and, and treated pretty differently, in my opinion, if it was called something else. But well, I'm kind of, especially on modern horror, old man rant coming, but I'm kind of getting tired of the same tropes because most modern horror films are dealing with kind of the same thing. And I get that there's only so many things in the horror genre you can do. I just I want to see somebody break out, and I haven't seen that lately. I haven't seen too many breakout filmmakers and directors, and like Jordan Peele did. I think Jordan Peele did that tremendously. I think um, Ari Aster did, and a couple of others. But like on the indie scene, old Panos, he's he's pretty good. Panos, but like but these are all like upper level indie directors. Where's my like? 
backyard movie? Where's my like Stuart Gordon, a guy who came from plays and started directing movies and made reanimator? Where's like the the weird shit? I'm just not getting enough weird stuff from modern like indie horror. It just seems to be kind of the same tropes that. I mean, you can spend hours with. searching for it, but then you end up just finding something like Bad Ben Seven Lost Highway. That there's so much shit that gets just shoved to the top. By the time you look and find that diamond, you're exhausted and don't feel like watching anything. So a lot of these things, it comes down to marketing. Like, uh, this could have easily been a pick on the show, but you and I were talking about Headhunter that just came out on Shudder. Something, very adequate movie, should have maybe been a short film, not over an hour long. But that gets pushed to the top. That's a Shudder exclusive that's going to get a bunch of people watching. A couple thousand people are going to watch it. There's, there's got to be something a bit more deserving. And it there's was be... okay, though. I mean, that was the thing. It's just yeah, okay. Bad. It just seems like, you know, this is such a thing. That's what most thing. of it is, though. It yeah, seems, you, seems like you most of it is just pedestal. okay. I mean, stuff like that gets put on a pedestal, and there just seems to be a lot more deserving things that, sure, might not be as well-produced or might have been shot on a, a smaller camera, but it's still, okay, using that again as an example... Two move, two people were in the movie. Two actors in general. So you can't tell me it was some you know million dollar budget we're working with here. Well, I mean, if you go to most modern horror stuff that's on streaming networks, especially that stuff, you have no idea what it is. It just pops up. First of all, I will say this: I will never watch a movie streaming anywhere that has the word paranormal in the title. At this point, there's a fucking thousand of them. And they're all just mostly garbage ghost movies and just nobody's trying. And I think that's my biggest problem is I think everybody's wanting to get a career and they want to see, like, see how good I can do what everybody else does. And I'm like, I'm not particularly interested. What I'm- well, that becomes a problem when you're making the 17th Haunted Doll movie that's coming out this year that all have the same names. But you that know? seems to be what they want to do, though. They'll make a movie because they want to make I want to make the next Annabelle. Why? Why? I mean, like. Where's the Toby Hoopers out there? Where's the... Well, that's the thing. They're, those people aren't around anymore because these people want to make the next Annabelle to make a shit ton of money. Um, you know, I, we mentioned we'd plug this every episode, but the movie I just worked on, Channel X with Manny and Mass Graves, it's not trying to be something else. And it's definitely not going to get pushed to the top. Like, sure, it'll probably... Well, it, Amazon's in the future. Things like Tubi are in the future, but being given a pedestal on a, a platform like Shudder... They, movies like that aren't looked at. It's got to be some overextended weird art piece like A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Okay, that's a great movie. It's on a Criterion Network right now. It definitely deserves to be showcased, and I get its point, but just like you're mentioning, like, where are the Toby Hoopers? All these guys are buried under this, you know, we have to have these 35 new Annabelle knockoffs and 68 new Conjuring knockoffs and all these new things and these independent pieces are totally just whatever. Well, you can find them. They're on Amazon, but they're not given a like splash page. They're not given look, looks like all these shutter originals or, you know, exclusive on shutter things. What inevitably are all of the, all of these movies that they're spotlighting. They're all foreign, which is fine. Foreign movies are, it's not the problem that they're foreign. The fact is just like America is just, we're falling behind to make an interesting fucking product here, folks. You're just not you're just wanting to make product. I mean, and the like, American studios, though, are, are uh, there. There are no medium level studios. You know, what I mean, Disney bought out everything. And then uh, God knows what's happening or what's well, the, the wine becoming. 
the studio system is fucked now, and that's kind of my point. The like the the, the idea that you're going to be making a movie for Blumhouse after your first feature is a fucking ridiculous notion. What you should be is proud to be an indie director, and the fact that you're getting away with things and doing things differently, and being that renegade, that rebel, that director that I don't trust because, like, people have mixed emotions definitely about toe tag pictures and stuff like august underground but i will give fred vogel this he made a movie that you couldn't turn away from and you felt unsafe of what was getting ready to happen and what you were getting ready to see and like what was produced over time with those movies just like i don't know if i'm prepared to get into this because i might get damaged where the fuck is that that doesn't even talk about that's not even about shock cinema or overly gory things or torture porn. That's not what I'm getting at. It's more of just I have like a good ideas because... and concepts that are going to take me to different places. Oh, this is something I've recently seen. I guess we'll do an extended recently seen that is, for all intents and purposes, incredibly overinflated, but gets these shock reviews of everything you just said you want. The house that Jack built, everyone that says... Shit. Yeah, this is this is it, man. This is that movie. You're not going to believe what happens. You even made a joke at one point before I'd seen the movie about all those kids Jack kills. Well, let me tell you someone that was very disappointed over the kid killing. That's me. It was That's just the you. cut version, Hank. But it's the oh, cut so version. Is there a third it's brutal. kid? No, in, well, in the uncut, I mean, in the uncut, there is um, when he's hunting the children, they have like insert shots of like actual hardcore violence happening to them and yeah. that's what was cut out that's literally all that was cut out i mean it's, that's not I what mean, i need i need more kids getting shot you know but i mean it, you were well, supposed to push all these boundaries and the house that jack built that's what they say you know it's the first art film to to really transcend and become a monster of a horror movie last house on the left did it fucking 40 some years beforehand much better much more accurate no violence and I'm still disturbed by that movie. Hess's performance, still, I have a hard time watching it because David Hess is such a son of a bitch in that movie. Now, here's the fucking twist, though. The more I think about it, I kind of like the house that Jack built. And I kind of like it because I think it literally is Lars von Tears flagrantly just jerking off with a ton of lube, just a lot of nasty wet sounds in front of everyone going, <laughs> you think this is deep. <laughs> it's not. And it's just, uh, it's plastic. It's absolutely plastic and, and, and dumb. And just like this thick bullshit. And it's masqueraded and it's put to the top and everybody talks about it. Everybody sees it. And there's nothing but thick plastic. You try to crack it away, you try to break it and get under that, and it's just, it's hollow under the plastic. There's nothing there, and it's soulless, I guess, is a, a better word for the house that Jack built. It just has no point. It is kind of fun, though. I like the ending. I kind of liked it. Well, for the indie directors out there, I will just say this much. If you're like, I, I want to make a movie, and your first writing of a script to make this movie involves a tribute to slasher films or a ghost movie, you need to go back to the fucking drawing board because what if I it's just a don't William give a Castle shit. type of ghost movie. That's like, that's even, that's slightly different, hopefully, but it's just, that's pretty much what people go to now. It's just, I want to make a slasher film because I love Jason movies and you can always tell because they call them Jason movies and not Friday the 13th movies, but it's like, so what? There's like a thousand slashers out there 
How are you going to do it differently? And they never do. They just they pile on the violence, and that's about it. I'm not trying to make it different. I just want it to be recognized as one of those things. Well, I mean, have you watched a indie comedy recently, or you know anything other than horror? I haven't watched a comedy in probably two or three years at this point. You and I watched uh, an awful comedy. With, with your remember. old lady, and I don't oh, remember what it was. Night? The date night, yeah. I was or, like, we no, watched was the it, comedy. No, it wasn't last... date. It was game night. Game, game night, night with yeah, Bateman. Jason Bateman. Yep. Last comedy I watched, Hank. I'm not like, shitting you. Don't you lie to me. I mean, but my my point with asking you this question is, unfortunately, it's not just you know, and I, like I don't want people listening to think that we're just calling out indie horror directors. This is everybody because. Watching a, a and I, I try to stay versatile. I try to, you know, just flip through things. I watch a lot of movies on TV. Um, like I was watching Batter Santa earlier today. Awful, just reprehensible. Dialogue even sucks. Great cast, amazing it people. It needed a sequel, apparently. Yeah, there were so many unanswered questions from Bad Santa, it had to get badder. And now we have this absolute piece of fucking celluloid waste and whatever. It's not indie. That's not my point. But there's just all this. Everything is so it's all a bloated corpse. Everything is just one big bloated corpse from indie comedies to horror to mainstream horror. The only thing that seems to be getting any source of originality is if you can manage to get on Star Wars and fucking work, especially on The Mandalorian. That apparently is where you can get some form of creativity out. I mean, let's even like I, I learned this earlier and was completely shocked. Zoolander 2. You know who fucking was one of the co-writers on that? Justin Theroux. Justin oh, yeah, he wrote the first one, too. That's like, why? Why? That blows my mind. That He's it's friends like, with Ben Stiller, dude. I don't yeah, know. But this is the mainstream millions upon millions upon millions of dollars being spent on shit. Justin Theroux and Ben Stiller's fucking Zoolander. Oh, it tanked. Uh, yeah, I, it, it tanked. But then even like uh, extending this rant to things that I enjoy, Twin Peaks Season 3. 18 hours. It was 18 hours. And again, a story that could have been told maybe in 25 minutes, maybe nope. even less than that. And it spawned two books that the, the farewell had to have two books to explain what was going on with it. All this is such dense, fake bullshit. There's there's absolutely it's not just like, you know, we're attacking indie horror, you know, and I don't know why that that triggered the, my well, other I mean, the word. Indie is kind of a fucking misnomer at this point, because like. Almost everything is indie because there's only like X amount of studio. It doesn't matter. I don't care if you had like ten thousand dollars or three hundred. The witch is an indie. Dollars. It's the fact that your concepts are bad. Like if I see another comedy, go to like something like Tubi or Prime right now and look up zombie movies. There are hundreds, and if I see another comedy-themed zombie movie, because Shaun of the Dead is considered retro at this point, it's 15 years old, I guess. Oh, let's make a comedy zombie film. It's like, oh, please don't. It's done. I mean, all these things have been done. I know you want to do something, but really sit down and write. That's the most important step to like making an indie horror film, is write well, not something. Not even just indie, though. I mean, let's look at Edward Norton's new... 1920s movie that we've talked That's and laughed bad. about before but that i mean god uh, mel gibson and sean penn have a new movie coming out about the creation of i think the webster's dictionary two you know amazing guys both of these are, are you know i god okay let me take a step back i say amazing guys as talent both very talented guys sean penn and mel gibson aren't personality wise what you would call amazing whatsoever yeah. Uh, reprehensible and anger issues are better words. But as talents as actors, both of them are, are very amazing. 
this movie already looks stupid. It's like five days long because Mel Gibson did it. Because nobody fucking tells these people no. On an issue you have with Quentin Tarantino, nobody says, eh. And do I love David Lynch and Twin Peaks? Sure. Did season three need to be 18 hours long? No. It did not. It didn't. It didn't at all. For me personally, I would rather take a good blood diner style movie over any modern ghost horror film. I don't care how talented you are as a director. I'm just not going to care. I got a good one. I every day of the week would rather watch Maniac than the remake of Maniac. Yes. There's nothing you could ever tell me that would make the new Maniac better than the original. There's just no way you cannot. You can't entertaining because it's not an entertaining film. No, it's kind of boring and way too artistic and acted poorly and just kind of a pointless exercise. And like we're going to get into this because we're getting we're going to slide off into the I've been working on a segue, but every time I try, I got got a segue working. Oh, sweet Jesus. Um, Because like the new maniac film and I will be using this word a lot tonight to reference, especially one of the films. And I've said it before on the show. We're going to go over it again. Tight. Maniac is not tight. Do you mean that like in a sense that it's tight or do you mean it like Fred Durst? Like that's tight. Oh, definitely not Fred Durst. But although the fanatic <laughs> was pretty tight. But anyway, um, I'm more talking about like all of your like all of your engines are on a fucking thousand and everybody in every department is pumping. But specifically, your script is tight. And what the Maniac remake is, is a lot of loose fucking ends and a lot of pointless shit because you don't have a story. But the first movie we'll be talking about tonight, because we're doing a double feature, does have a story. The last and, time um, that we tried to do a double feature, it was incredibly beyond dense subject matter that was definitely not fit for a drive-in. What you would think in as you know, a drive-in double feature. So we decided to just say, let's make it worse. What if we could pick <laughs> movies that were worse that you could never watch at a drive-in? And that's what we did. And But out of everything, and I'm trying to even think 10 years back... Out of so many shows we've done, this is the first time I I literally did no work. I didn't I didn't need to read anything. I didn't obsessively watch a movie 180 times. Nope, I got it. And so I, I it's funny that we we spend a 20 minute intro kind of getting you know personal with what we like and and what we're interested in and some of our thoughts and then we're about to get into such a tight but very paranoid wasteland. Oh yeah, and. When talking about these movies, again, let me, you know, wax my car a little bit and talk about what a super genius I am because we wanted to do a show about the conversation. I let's do a double feature, and off the top of my head, I came up with the with the next film, which is Bug. I think we picked film Bug. I think we referenced or picked something else, and both of us instantly were like, no, 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 no. Um, the blowout. I think we we thought about maybe doing blowout with John Travolta, and then you you picked Bug, and you were very hesitant. You didn't want to do this one. <laughs> I didn't want to do blowout because I don't want to sit through blowout again. With Bug, I it came out in 2006, and I was like, it got uber hyped. Uh, like William Freakin's back and it's in this taut thriller and blah, blah, and scarier than the exorcist. It was going to be super intense and I watch it and it's intense in a way, but I was just kind of like somewhat disappointed because I think it got overhyped to me. But now like 13 years later, going back and watching it, I can kind of 
get my hands around it. It wasn't as like disappointing as I thought it was, but still eh, it's got some issues I have. And uh, that has a lot to, more to do with how it was written. Cause it was originally a play, but overall it's a really, I'm good very movie. interested to hear that because that's a lot of complaints that are registered with that movie is, is, is people's issues with how it's written. And I don't have, and I, we've talked about this before with my love of the big kahuna. I just, I, I love that it, is written the way it is. I, I I want more thing. You know, just talking about what we were previously. What you want out of movies. What you want out of people. I would love more isolated plays shot like this. I I, I really really enjoy this out of Friedkin's work. This is one of my top pieces. Not to say that that can't work as a film because like Glengarry Glenn Ross is one of my favorite movies of all time. That's most definitely a play. Like a lot of David Mamet stuff is great as film or play. But I think what doesn't work about it is, well, you have to think back to the advertising campaign because the way they were advertising it was much more of a horror film as opposed to like a paranoid um, type situation where it's, it's horrific. Yeah, well, I mean it's horrific in ways, but they're you know they're like advertising like it's another Saw movie or something. Like you're not going to believe the places this goes. I'm like, well, no. Now that I know but, the well, plot, it was I know really exactly advertised. Places this I is mean, going to go. Because I, I remember buying into this, and I didn't see it in theaters, and I got it on home video right when it came out. I actually remember the video store I went to to get this because they didn't have it, and I remember being, you know, uh, but I got it to The Exorcist. How do you – just, you know, thinking everyone cared about William Friedkin. It was, you know, mainly labeled as, as scarier than The Exorcist. It was one of those first 2000 movies that really carried that, and they were just billing Friedkin's name that it's going to be the scariest thing you've seen in years. It's so horrifying. It's so horrifying. And it's when I watched sad, I wouldn't call it horrifying at all. It's kind of just sad. I, I feel with especially my first experience, because uh, I was a little bit younger, mid-teens when I first saw it, it, it to me was one of the most horrifying things I'd ever seen. Because I had no real exposure to people that are, are people like the people depicted in this movie. And I don't mean that necessarily by addicts or crazy people. But as you know, you, you move out into life and you experience things, even at the grocery store or the train station, you start to experience and, and realize more people and realize their, their perception or what's going on. And this movie at the time to me presented such a ah, just frightening reality. Just I, I could not grasp why these things were happening. And then, you know, years later, rewatching this movie and having a little bit more experience with life, grasping what's happening is is fucking even more horrifying for me because I don't know what's happening and you don't know what's happening. Nobody knows what's happening. And that's the lack of control to me is one of the most frightening things you could do as a director. And I think Friedkin with uh, just perfection managed to, I don't know how to word it, managed to give you the view of, of no control. You're sitting in your fucking house watching this movie on home video. You have all the control in the world. But somehow, visually, he managed to just just strip that of you, just take it at, at its essence. I love it. I, like, I think Freakin did an admirable job, but I'd say what works most about Bug is Michael Shannon's performance. Because he is the as, best. As the character is written, it could go in some really dumb fucking places, but his intensity, um, his level of making something like almost funny at times in the film because when he removes the quote-unquote egg sack from his tooth you know he like reminds looks me at of it. who it's it's a weird reference we talked about it last week but just his his level of energy and his way of becoming the character really reminds me of bill paxton in near dark 
because he just becomes this like the finger looking good thing. Just that absolute insanity that some of like the tooth scene, he just does it. He just does it so goddamn fast and just rips and pulls and he's laughing and screaming and just he's really overcome with what's happening. And it's apparently Friedkin like wouldn't go over three takes for this either, which is fucking I don't know. I, I always pictured him being really, really anal about things, but uh, a lot of the actors would kind of get tense with him and like annoyed, like, well, what are we supposed to do? And he three or four takes, he knew what was going on. And I think that not letting people get as prepared as they needed to be added that level of realism and like knowing that that's only two or three takes of Michael Shannon going fucking crazy. What would have 20 takes turned into? You know, this guy really Michael Shannon is the best. He's just fucking awesome. Well, I mean, okay, like when he removes his tooth and he puts it under the microscope and he sees the egg sac or whatever, and he like lets out this weird, almost animalistic kind of howling noise, and like it'll be, it's a very goofy performance at that time, but it works because we've been pushed to search a certain degree of insanity at this point that we're right along with him. So it just, I mean, that's the kind of the the weird ironies of life type situation the way his he's portraying this this actor like yeah weirder shit could happen and um we got to tell these people what the movie's about about two people who get together who are both very broken one of them is mentally unstable and the other one might have a substance abuse problem which has a substance abuse problem it's definitely relevant to the story but one thing i think is is a part of Friedkin's precision is the lack of drug use. It's there. You see them do it. And there's usually always something in frame or in shot. What about the Coke bugs, Hank? What about the Coke bugs? But it's not like spun, you know, they're not methed out and visually, you know, they're not showing you that these people are nonstop doing drugs where you have a movie like spun that they're doing meth the entire time. You have it in this, you know, they're doing it, but it's not, a heavily well, overlying part because you you've got Michael Shannon and his intricacies. He's the quote unquote possibly mentally insane one, or maybe the CIA is putting bugs in him and Timothy McVeigh. There's a lot of wild uh, accusations thrown out through his possible insanity, but his uh, her drug abuse is one thing. But she's a broken woman. She's lost her child. Literally, she lost her fucking kid at a grocery store. Maybe, maybe her husband took him. We don't know. She, her, her, it's her mindset, and it's not just the drugs. And I think Friedkin not showing people do it constantly is a is a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing of these two characters coming together from different houses, and no one wants it to happen. And it's not just she's vulnerable because of drugs. It's not just some white trash Jerry Springer story that there's multiple levels to her broken mentality, and that comes, I think, specifically into play when you know they get into the whole. I'll give you your kid back thing with the doctor, CIA agent, a.k.a. me, apparently. Well, the, the big difference is, like, Spun is a movie about drugs, and this is not a movie about drugs. I mean, drugs are, are in the periphery because of who she is and who her character is, but it's really more about the insanity of two people who feed off each other, and that's basically what they do. As he goes crazier, she goes crazier. And, um, I mean, it's hinted at that there could be something more insidious going on, but more than likely, he's just a paranoid schizophrenic. 
um, and all this shit is in their head. I mean, I mean, you got to look at sound design with some of these things too that add a lingering notion of what's real and what's not in your head. Like when the doctor or possibly CIA agent shows up, and uh, Ashley Judd's freaking out. The bug zappers are zapping. There's nothing in the room. You don't see bugs, but they are. Why are the bug zappers going off then? Why? So there's just like these layers of sound design that add in this uh, like existential paranoia that slowly starts taking you over because you're trying to follow this on a linear aspect and none of it's making sense anymore. Is he crazy? I mean, we, we don't see the bugs, but he's fucking destroyed. So is she. Are they picking? Or is it the drugs? He doesn't do. He even states at the beginning he doesn't smoke. So he's just ridiculously unstable and has gotten her under his will on top of whatever else you want to put into play on this. You could even look at this movie as, I mean, hey, Hank, you ready to get a little bit political? <laughs> Uh-oh. Not too political, but, I mean, with the amount of conspiracy theories that are you, the You're always now. the one that says not too political, and then 40 minutes later, I've got, I'm like, a cigar and a beret on, and I'm screaming. It's, oh, it's Hold not up. you. It's me. Let's see where we, where we go with this. It's not going very deep. But, I mean, with the amount of conspiracy theories that are on the Internet right now, that's generally where a lot of this movie goes is towards the end when they go on that feeding off each other rant of how he's the, I'm fucking the queen mama bug. Yeah, all that shit. Like that's all very conspan that's it's kind of a telling story of how people like this are and how people like this are in our modern climate where they're automatically going to believe I mean, there are things like well, I mean, Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. And he yeah. most definitely did. I yeah. mean, that's not a hard conspiracy theory to like get behind. But like, so well, so the other shit. Right there, you have a great display of of what you're exactly talking about because the doctor walks in and goes, "So the, the the tinfoil," and they do the whole thing of where she's screaming at him. No, the bugs are the transmitters. You should know this. And you know, crack smoking doctors are just tinfoil that they've tinned the walls and the the ceiling and everything. That's the exact same thing as sitting behind your computer and being terrified because of this Alex Jones video or whatever. Or just any of the other things that are out there that it's there are people out there that are damaged, that are frightened, that are afraid. And it has nothing to do with really what's going on in the world as much as it is what's going on within themselves. And they get really defensive and they lock themselves in their room and then they start just believing everything. Well, I can't believe anything the television tells me. I, can't, what I can believe what the internet tells them. me. What, what QAnon tells me, I can believe. There's, I mean, there's a very much way you can map that psychosis. It's just it builds and it builds and it builds on itself. And a lot of that has to do with just associating with actual reality. And at this point in history, most people aren't associating with reality. They're associating with the reality they create for themselves in their homes behind their fucking screens. So well, even with psychosis, is that any different than what Michael Shannon's going through? Because, I mean, this character and I mean, just kind of trying to get into what happens in this movie, you've got a waitress living in a, you know, shovel or hovel, pretty much. You know, she's living in a, a broken down motel in Oklahoma, I believe, and spends most of her time with her best friend doing drugs and partying. And her best friend introduces her to Michael Shannon, who she has known for one day. And he is kind of a, a white knight. I mean, you really do have this, like, 
really pretty romance going on that this very broken person meets somebody that is finally stable and dependable and you can trust them. It just so happens he's utterly insane and believes that the military has put bugs in him and Timothy McVeigh's head and, you know, they're controlling him and bafflingly insane theories. But, you know, through her will or want to love or connect or to be human again through the loss she's experienced and and her mental state and and you know obviously the drugs coming into play it's not so much that she's willing to believe in the bugs or that this guy yeah, was she being wants tortured. to believe him yeah she wants to believe in love she wants to believe in acceptance and and you know uh, her friend R rj i can't remember the name her best friend tries to step in and is you know very sensible i don't see bugs she looks through the microscope she looks at the flesh she she took her friend to a doctor and the doctor tells them that these are self-inflicted wounds. You know, you're doing this, you're, you're under psychosis. Are you on drugs? That she has these things that have just become non-realistic anymore. You know, even a very abusive boyfriend who, despite being incredibly abusive uh, physically and hitting her, tries in the long run to help her. All of these people that are willing to see the error of her ways, but she doesn't. So is the realism, is it, Oh, it definitely it's because uh, that's the thought. Is it the CIA thing or is he crazy or is it drugs? No, it's just love. It's just a very dark and bizarre love story because that's well, what she a mix of all of those things. It's well, a mix she, she, her of need her, be, wanting, her need. It's a mix of the drugs. It's a mix. But she of, has to feel that she's not a fuck up. And Michael Shannon doesn't make her feel that way. Michael Shannon uh, makes her feel like she is oh, taking yeah. care of something. So it's that childlike aspect because she lost, and they explain in the movie, she lost her kid at a grocery store. Somebody had maybe took it. Maybe her ex-husband took the child. Nobody knows, but she has this hole that has to be filled. Well, the thing about Ashley Judge's character is all of these things that add up in like in her life, the spiral of her life, into this relationship and where this relationship openly takes her into fucking Harry Carey, basically. Um, this is very kind of normal for a lot of people. I would I say, think you mean I think Harry Carey, Connick Jr. Oh, oh but a delicious bump. pun, Hank. But um, I, I think this is, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. Cause I think this happens to people every day. One thing bad happens to them, and then they let that spiral them into basically psychosis. And the, and the fact that you have somebody who's completely mentally unstable that you've fallen in love with just makes the process go that much faster. And I think that's a good portion of what this movie is. It, it talks about sadness of people, sadness of mentally ill. And well, that's a telling thing at the end of the movie, though, because it's the first and only time that either of these characters say, I love you to one another. And they say it in this embrace that maybe didn't happen. No, I mean, maybe the, none of it happened except for parts of it. I mean, it's it's a little ambiguous in the overall narrative. What really happens? Well, I it wasn't incredibly please. ambiguous until the end. That there are two shots that are less than a second long that are placed in the credits that completely arouse your suspicions more than anything else throughout the entire movie that you're left with a constant feeling of paranoia and questioning. Does this happen? Is this happening? Is he insane? Is it the CIA? But then it's not until you fully watch the credits. And one of them is completely post one is at the very, very end. If you don't fully follow through and watch those scenes, the level of suspicion and paranoia is not fully unveiled to you. And those last two sequences, one of which is the very first shot of the movie are replayed. The room with the child's toys perfectly untouched 
and then the doctor or CIA agent laying dead on the floor, which was the very first shot that you are introduced and into this environment with. So you're as Ashley Judd is in no control. You've lost your control. You've lost your sense of reality. You don't know if this movie actually happened as she doesn't know if she fell in love or what happened to her child or her life or her dreams, or you're left in a hole. Essentially you're left in this just eloquently dug hole. And I think that's the horror of it all that it's just like trying to dig your way out, breaking your fingernails and you can't, you know, is it the bugs? What's happening? Did they burn? Who knows? It's very, it's Romeo and Juliet. I choose to believe in in my head that it's a very representative film and it is just about paranoia and schizophrenia and psychosis. Um, I mean, I think well, that's logical, though. I mean, that that's what I, I think want it's to left believe. ambiguous and almost a sort of like 1950s monster movie way where you have the question mark at the end. I think that's generally what he was like. Where are the bugs was just put is it? I mean, it's not so much as this over. Basically, did this happen? Do we even know what would happen this whole time? The, the only clues I really get are like um, when the helicopters pass over, and at the end they like when the shit's going down, the helicopters the final the sound vibrate and all that shit. If they cut to Harry Connick Jr. outside trying to beat the door in, and you can hear a helicopter in the background, well, but it's I guess way the in black. the distance, it well, finally it, cuts to full black, and you've just got the sound of the burning as it fades out, and then the helicopter slowly comes in as paranoia is looming and, and breaks your realism, which I completely agree with, and it's one of my favorite pieces of design for this movie, which I think for something... Um, I know the exterior shots were in Alabama, and most of it was shot on a soundstage. The whole apartment um, and the kitchenette and all that stuff was, was done on a soundstage. And for such a, a low thing you know such a low space uh putting these actors and people out into different spaces and using the environment to tell the story placing it inside of one thing and the sound design and the design of all that together i think adds to the paranoia and just compacts of you know the the realism that they're all just stuck in this little one room you know it's is it real is it is it a, a fantasy is it a fever dream are they so coked out they don't know what's going on but what i really what I really want to take from it and what I, I like to think is, yeah, you're right. It's psychosis and paranoia and schizophrenia, but there's just something so quaintly beautiful about their, uh, their, their love or lack thereof or fixation or fascination on themselves. And this happens with people a lot that you fall in love with the idea of somebody, not so much somebody. And I think that is what happens in Ashley Judd's case, that she has fallen in love with the idea of somebody, but that the protection albeit insanity that they offer her is just something more than she's had in, in so long. And you can think of yourself as incredibly strong and I'm not telling you to put yourself in this character's place, but you just have to look at weakness and not necessarily through addiction, but just being destitute and broken, not monetarily, but in your heart and your head, just being that way, what you would do for love. And it's a, a, for love. a portrayal of what happens because of that. Because I think there's a lot of connotations to the word love, but when her friend is there, and Michael, well, I think when her friend is there, Michael Shan's having a seizure and shit, and she freaks out on her friends, like, why do you have to take this one thing from? Why can't I have one thing? And I think it's just so much love as it is. It's a thing. Well, it's, it's just that's a even, thing she can have. I, I might be using the term. I, I, well, it's not me using the term wrong. A lot of well, people what, will take what people, love represents. Well, yeah, that's what people. I mean. People and will in take this the case. Word, I don't. I don't think it's so much love as it is just 
concepts and just wanting to have something for yourself. And I think that's well, I think so- that's the problem that people will take like love and they think it's romantic and it doesn't necessarily have to be. So my extension of that word is their companionship, because before the scene that you just brought up, which I'm glad you did, because it made me think of this. They, they're having, you know, this this horrible fever dreamed thing about the bugs and the bites and and Ashley Judd picks one out of herself and they they talk about that they've only had sex once and it was great and it was fine but they didn't just need that that their companionship their their togetherness was what was fulfilling so in in my nature what i mean by love is just their their fulfillment with one another they felt happy as companions you know they became a unit they became like a different piece and then the insanity starts to spiral out of control because their reality has become new both of these people have interconnected and you know using the term loosely in a in a love affair despite it may, not being non-sexual or in the essence of of romanticism but that causes a new reality and so now nothing else matters and it's the same fanaticism it's the same passion when you first start dating someone and you talk to them all the time and that's what they go through in these thralls of insanity is their obsession with themselves and not being alone and and finally being able to connect to something even if they're anonymous which we'll get to even, even more following up in uh, in our next movie but because obviously she has addiction problems and that's pretty much who michael shannon is he's just another drug for her to get addicted to it's just another thing to help her forget about the state of her life. Uh, we discussed this on the show too, but you know, people that try to fix people, that's what she wants. Essentially, you know, she wants to make this right, her right, him right, that he might be broken. But two, you know, we've gotten so deep into what this movie is about. None of this is really presented to you. This isn't out in the open. When you're introduced to Michael Shannon, you're also introduced to Harry Connick Jr., who is a physically violent ex-con, just got out of prison, very bad man, apparently tried to kill Ashley Judd's character. And then you've got this kind of saves the day, quiet mouse kind of guy. And you've got this transition between these two and this bravado and this tiny little space and this broken Ashley Judd and and no one goes anywhere. Somebody leaves the room, but you're still stuck with them. And it's kind of like what you were discussing at the beginning of the show with watching something like Dawn of the Dead on the big screen. You suddenly can't escape it. She can't escape any of this. There is there's work or there's partying, there's work partying bugs. So her reality with this connection, love for all intents and purposes has, you know, become her, her flesh has become everything to where it's literally consuming her as he feels he's being consumed by bugs, whether it be psychosis or bugs. Does that make sense? I mean, I, you know, yeah, I think uh, and as it gets deeper into their relationship, I think it also becomes a lot more of not having to face things by yourself. Where And they even invent something to fucking freak out about, basically, the bugs. Um, just to have something like to, like, like, to like, bound, the, bound them together more so. Just like, oh, we're into the, we're into the same thing, which in this case is like freaking out about pretend bugs but i mean that's generally what i mean the thing is it's just like we can we can obsess about something together see it's it, i don't feel well, such a, know, like the, a fool the, of obsessing about something the pizza scene is a good example of that because she I even don't think that looks clean well she even states and yells like when did i order pizza did i order a pizza that you and nobody answers he doesn't you know have some immediate like no you definitely didn't they can't fucking remember did somebody order a pizza? And obviously it's not shown to you in frame as somebody did. And that's not the point, but they freak out so heavily about it, but no one can even remember where it comes from that instantly. Well, the CIA is sending us pizzas. 
that's got that's logical. We don't know who ordered this, so the CIA had to have done it. And it just, but did they? Because all of a sudden, you know, the doctor shows up, and is it a matter of coincidence? Was it the doctor and Harry Connick Jr. trying to lure them out so this could have been avoided? Did they embrace in a final moment of love and kill the queen, mother bug, and the drone and burn themselves to death? What happened? I mean, that's the big question. What happened, and did it matter? Well, does any of it matter? Does anything really matter particularly? Well, in a transient sense, no. But I mean, like in the linear aspect of her life and his and Harry Connick Jr.'s, if they didn't burn, what? Oh, it's all going to be fucking misery make, if they're you know? still yeah. alive. I mean, it's all misery. Maybe they stabbed each yeah. other to death. There we maybe, go. That's what I mean. Maybe the government is in on this and there are bugs. Like, none of this is matter. None yeah, of this it, is going to end well there's in no any sort good, of iteration. There we go. Yeah, that's that's where I was was more pushing that trade on to in the long run. Yes. In a transient sense of life in the universe, nothing truly matters. And uh, that's OK. You can come to terms with that. But William Friedkin's bug in the long run, if they didn't burn themselves, if if they did stab the doctor, I think that's the one thing, you know, is for certain, because that's how the movie begins is the doctor that shot of the doctor that that he's not guy. real. Feel it. See, I mean, he's a robot. Well, yeah, it wasn't a debate if he wasn't real. It was a debate if he was a robot or not. But still, that poor son of a bitch, really, at least he got a crack high before he died, which is uh, more than many of us could just hope for. But still, it's just so. Well, here's my reason. It's again, I reason. hate this term, but it's just so nihilistic. Why I think that he's crazy that this happened. He starts invoking Timothy McVeigh and a whole bunch of other really stupid government conspiracy bullshit about mind control. Like, I mean, the typical conspiracy stuff. This isn't like crazy shit. He's just kind of like a left. Well, I, I will no, say this judging- is like. What most people on the internet freak out about are these specific It's what they freak out about now, though. I mean, when Tracy Letts wrote this and Friedkin did it, I don't think it was as big. Oh, it was still there, man. I mean, it was still there. There was a lot of the same shit going on. This is 2006 and it was still there. And there's still the Remember Ruby Ridge banners and all that shit going on. But at the same time, if you made a fictional character, if you picked somebody else, I don't think it would have been as hardcore. And that's one of the things that. I think works with the psychosis is mentioning somebody as big as Timothy McVeigh because he pretty much is the same character. He was just a guy. And when you research and you look, you know, if you know anything about Timothy McVeigh, he got fucked over really bad by the Marine Corps. He got fucked really, really, really bad and he needed help and he didn't get it and his actions land on him most certainly and definitely. But between him and this character, from the story that he tells, you can become sympathetic with that. If you don't take into consideration what Timothy McVeigh did in the long run and you read his story, you would have sympathy for it. If you saw on Facebook, this vet needed to go to the VA and got fucked out of his rights and was hurt and has PTSD and needs help, one like, one share, you'd share it. Your aunt would share it. You'd see it. Somebody on your friends list is going to share it and get a million goddamn things. But you add in, he blew the hell out of this building. Ah! You can't like and share it anymore. You got to take it down. It's not going to it's you. You can't show that to the public. So this guy, if he is insane, who is going to believe him? Because these are the claims he has. So it's the exact same consistency of what are you going to like and what are you going to share and what the full story is? Was he mentally damaged because of these things that they did to him? I mean, it's 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 I don't think a possibility. I mean, I don't think so. A lot of it's PTSD. There's a possibility that it's. 
Well, I mean, uh, I, I don't think that's the case. I'm just giving a whole different layer of how the, the insanity. I don't think it's supposed to be fair and that you're going to get a side. And that's like the this whole detailed Timothy McVeigh thing. You do get a side. You do get fairness. Your actions have reactions. You can't do what you did and, and people celebrate you because you did something as a revenge because the government wronged you. So if this guy's absolutely bullshit, fucking insane, batshit insane – Bullshit insane. That's weird. Um, <laughs> he dragged Ashley Judd down. He, you know, his his actions have a reaction. He killed this guy. He brings her down into this this depths of insanity that sure she could have unlocked on her own, but otherwise probably wouldn't have. And because of it, if the fire wasn't real, it still mentally was. And he's fucked up everything for everyone. And is it his fault? Because if it's the government doing it, that's one thing. But if he's batshit crazy, still, is it his fault? You can't blame the the insane. They don't know what they're doing. It's not their fault. The bugs are real to him. He saw a bug. It's an aphid, not a bug. Yeah, it is. It's an aphid. But he did. He saw them. So, I mean, that's the thing. How can you blame him? How can you be mad at the guy? He's, he saw them. Well, that's when I say always like this is a more of a sad movie than a horror movie to me because it's just like, wow, none of this had to happen. But here we go. <laughs> this is where we're going. And this is just going to turn out bad for everybody involved. And it does. It just does. I'm the queen mother bug. And well, you're the uh, what, what, what was he? She's the drone. The oh, the drone. Yeah. The egg sack. I'm the egg sack drone. What an upsetting finish to a movie. But, you know, you look at William Friedkin's career and like one of my favorite films by him is Cruising. And I think this has a, a great comparability with how tight it is and the tension between it and his accuracy as a filmmaker and what he Different needs to show tight. you. Oh, yeah, it is because Cruising is a sloppy tight. It exposes uh, a vile, dirty nature to things but, as uh, to where I mean, Bug is so accurate and inside your head. Well, because I think you're more referencing as in like a rope or tension tight. And when I'm using the term to talk about our next movie, which we're getting into now, you're talking I'm about we're talking next about movie, the car for Mad Max firing on all pistons, the last of the V8, yes. you know, heavy fucking the guns. The fact that like I always use Get Out as an example of this. And this movie is another prime example of being tight, especially in a script format. Before we say the name of this movie, I, I just want to like absolutely say this next film is was one of my top five favorites of all time. I, I just recently saw it for the first time this year. And it's I, going, it's, it should have gone on the greatest of all time list, but we're doing this episode instead. We'll, we'll we're do doing the paranoia show. God damn it. We'll do a greatest of all time part two and just do this again as an honorable mention. I will fist fight anybody. I, I swear we can set this up like Uwe bowl fist fight. Hank, this is one of the greatest movies ever. Goddamn made. Well, everything that is in the script, everything that is filmed, everything is presented to you is absolutely necessary. And that's what I really mean by tight. Everything informs something else. Nothing is wasted. In you don't think movie. that's true with cruising? Uh, well, I mean, cruising's a different kind of thing. Like, I mean, oh, I thought we were still talking can... about the tight between cruising and. Well, that's a more of a tension tight. It's like a tightness of um, just the story that they're telling, and almost like a tight butthole sort of idea of just like t 
tense. Well, I mean, no, really, that, that's pretty apt because all cruising is is Al Pacino's tight butthole. Like, that whole movie is about him <laughs> clinching until so. he finally, at the end, can unclench. But at the same time, it's like 10 to midnight. It's such a gritty, filthy movie. And then something like Bug, despite being very gritty and filthy, it's actually quite clean and precise and, and molded and crafted eccentrically perfect. Only a madman can do it. And this movie that we're moving into, uh, the craftsmanship is is astounding. The, it, a- it, it truly, this is like, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to bring up like models, but like, you know, you dream of like your fantasy car or the most perfect operating greatest badass thing you could ever drive. And when I can like think of that as a film, it's this, this is it like if you go into i'm gonna go ahead and use tarantino as an example because he's my whipping boy but a lot a lot of stuff in and albeit i do enjoy pulp fiction i think it's a well-made film mostly due to roger avery not Quentin tarantino but that's beside the point Um, brown a lot of stuff in tarantino's work is completely unnecessary like the whole um the uh, breakfast table scene in Reservoir Dogs. I mean, it's necessary to set up characters. It's necessary to give people some character traits and to introduce who these people are. But a lot of the conversation they're having is just mindless fucking drivel. Just to like, okay, this is generally who this person is. And when we well, get, I, I gotta ask, what do you want? I mean, do you want them talking about the job, like heat, or I mean, because I, no, I, I think that's one of the pleasantries of Quentin Tarantino is his realism with the senseless dialogue. It's not like Rob Zombie, pussy fart, fuck ass shit that it's, you know, that's again, that's I was listening to the radio because a lot of Rob Zombie stuff is just thrown in there because you need them talking and you need them to be saying something. And when we get into the conversation, Francis Ford Coppola's the conversation. Oh, we finally said the name. We dragged this out as long as we could. Every scene, every action, Every bit of dialogue is necessary to establishing who these people are. Well, that's and what I mean what with the, the car thing involved in. Like if you had your perfect vehicle, you know, and it fired the way it should and it was just the way you wanted to ride and everything was perfect, it would be the conversation. There is nothing in this movie that's not necessary. There is no there needs to be no director's cut. There is no deleted scenes because it was all there. And absolutely from its first opening shot, which is gorgeous outstanding because you are uh where do you go you're you're brought into a chaotic atmosphere and then you've got this fucking sound design man and and it starts layering in and it's like you're watching somebody paint you can see where it starts getting pieced together and you start getting this feeling of loneliness immediately and the second like you break into the environment of what's happening and you're introduced to your characters of Gene Hackman as um Harry Call and John Cazale as Stanley and I can't remember the cop's name but they're all introduced in the scene and then you've got um Ah, chef from Apocalypse Now, whose name I can't remember, and somebody from Laverne and Shirley. You get Forrest, Frederick Forrest, and Cindy Williams. There we go, my man. Look at the brain on bread. You've got this introduction right off the bat of who all of these people are, and it's like the shell builds out. Do you even know who these people are, especially with Frederick Forrest and Cindy Williams? You get informed of they're the target possibly what is going to happen to them. You start having some ideas of who they might be and what's you don't going need to on, know but all that gets need the nut. really like, flipped on its head. This, this whole, like, throughout the film. I, I love this reference I've created here because this whole film and its characters are all little seeds. 
And at the very beginning of the movie, you get Gene Hackman, John Cazale, uh, Friedrich Forrest, and Laverne, or maybe Shirley. Forgot the name already. And you get these tiny little seeds planted. And the movie starts in the same format of this very big, beautiful shot moving in. And you start focusing on this mime and this distorted sound design. And it starts letting you realize what all the different characters and all the different placements in the scene are doing. And you suddenly are drawn completely inside of it. And you become completely distorted and the seed starts to grow. So in the bigger picture, you've got like a farm, I guess, that the movie's growing and inside of it, all of these tiny characters suddenly start to bloom because you've got your targets and these two targets slowly grow and turn into completely different trees. Then you've got your essentially one major lead and his following characters, but he grows and eventually withers that he becomes bright and blooming and then his crop dies. And these seeds all take completely different forms and shape and they go outward. You know, most of the time you're thinking of an inward thing when you're looking at a movie or character development of people starting one way in the long run, they become something different. Sure, that happens here, but it's an outward aspect of it well, that it, they start inside themselves. It's and interesting that you go to, that way yeah. because I think what's interesting about Gene Hackman's character is where we end up going with this. It's not that he changes as a character at all, as much as we change our perception of who he is, because he just seems so put together. He goes outward. The beginning, he he, and then you find really what he is about. And but what happens to you when you go insane? What happens when not insane, but when you, you know, break, when you're hurt, when you're angry, when you're at your last straw, you go outward. All those things that you keep locked inside, your true personality, your true self, they suddenly go out and everyone can see them. So the movie starts with him as this tiny little thing, and, and, and they just know what he wants them to know. But as he slowly breaks and the pressure becomes on it because it grows out, and all these things you keep in are just shooting out around you, you know what I mean? His pressure, his ideas of love, his perfection, his precision, his, uh, for lack of better words, obsessive-compulsive disorder pretty much just spirals to where he is broken and doesn't care. Well, okay, I, 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 I hope I make sense. Um, Because to me, these two characters seem like Harry Call and... We're so emotional on this episode. (laughs) Well, and Ray Fiennes from Spider, I think, are very much the same character because Ray Fiennes never changes as a character, particularly in Spider. We just get the information to understand who he is been this entire movie. I think Gene Hackman's a lot of the same thing as that. As we get the information of what initially has happened to him to cause him to be this way. You're told who Harry is when he... And that's really what the story is about. I mean, there's there's a kind of a spy intrigue thing going on with surveillance and paranoia, but he's been paranoid this whole movie. He's always been this. It's Uh, just finally getting to yes, we're finally getting to see who he really is at the end and what ultimately happens to him and how broken he gets and like he's in this destroyed apartment. You're presented in that party scene when when he's being wiretapped and snaps at everybody, uh, his his vulnerability. And then you're even presented with his girlfriend, what type of man Harry is. So you get a somewhat clear picture of him that he pays this woman's rent in her apartment for her room and doesn't even tell her his real name or, or what he does. Or you know, he tells her he's a musician. He's a very broken man. And. Uh, we again, we love to get so deep into things before we talk about what the hell this movie's about. Um, I have paranoia. IM- I've got IMDb up right now, so let's read what they have to say about it because we can just 
you know, go from there. I just paranoid, we've all seen it. <laughs> well, uh, that's uh, the conversation from 1974. Officially, this is the second time we said the title by Francis Ford Coppola and written by Francis Ford Coppola. It recently popped up on the Criterion Network, and I'll be honest, I've never seen it before. And I have, for 10 years, talked about how much I love Apocalypse Now, how great Francis Ford Coppola is, and I sucked his dick so long and hard. I saw the conversation, and now I don't think it's Apocalypse It's his masterwork. Yeah. It's, I, it's really his master's masterwork, well, his I, best I, film. I saw this film, and now I don't think Apocalypse Now is a good movie. And, like, it, it's that barring. It, it, this is precision and truly a, a well-accurate firing car. I mean, if you will, this is the last of the V8 Interceptors Mad Max. This is, you know, what Mel Gibson would have taken out on the goddamn road. This is the shiniest, greatest, fastest fucking movie. And I don't think it's the greatest movie ever made. I'm sure one day I'll find something better. Enough. Legitimately, it's one right. of the greatest movies ever made. Oh, it truly is, but it's it's hysterical almost to see the direction Francis Ford Coppola went in after this. That his precision was completely lost. But you know, other people yes. I'm sure argue that something like because The Godfather, or The Godfather Two, is 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 absolutely much more. I wouldn't precise. call that precision. I wouldn't call the Godfather's a meandering movie about family part two, and all these different two. things. But really, it's like meanders all over the place in a lot of different ways. I'm not saying it's not a great film. What I'm saying is it's just, it's loose and it just meanders its plot and it's um, characters. And let's just see where like a lot of these people can go. And the conversation is completely antithetical to that because it is going directly in a specific direction and headed towards a specific place and everything. I don't know. Get Out is another prime example. That's the, that's the next best thing I can tell you, where it's just like everything is going one direction. Get on board or get the fuck off now. Well, with that under the belt, the conversation, a paranoid secretive surveillance expert has a crisis of conscience when he suspects that a couple on whom he is spying will be murdered. So translating that from IMDb, somewhat bleak and transparent description of things, this guy has experienced this before. You instantly get a, a knowledge of who he is, that he is a lonely man. He's a broken man, possibly from his previous experiences in life throughout the telling of the, the story. CIA. Yeah, he, he more than likely. I mean, this is a, a, an era that you just couldn't learn this stuff. So he, he had to be some for, form of secret service, a spook, some government agent that never existed, you know, CIA type of guy. And he's very broken. He has no identity. He has no self. He is a very precise man and something that I thought was, you know, there's, there's one, there's one specific scene in this movie. I think it's one of the most perfect, beautiful shots in the world, but as a character, as a, a director trying to push somebody and figure out where they're going, this guy is incredibly anal and he can't even perform his job with questions. He has to, he has to draw a line in the sand. He doesn't need to know what he's doing. He just needs to know the job, and he'll do I it. He needs to know that the tape is as perfect as it can be. It's a fat That's tape. all I care about. He directly, I want to know it's a fat tape. But in his free time, this guy goes home and breaks all those rules. He goes home, and he takes off his socks and his pants, and he plays saxophone to free jazz to some Miles Davis stuff, and he, he cuts loose. And he he experiences in these moments something that he, he doesn't otherwise in his life or whatever his training before this movie might have been. He gets to experiment with chaos and, and just playing and, and being an individual as to where in his normal 
existence. He doesn't have that. And is doesn't have friends. He has colleagues. The guy he works with, Stanley, obviously cares for him and likes him to uh, inquire about his health or what's wrong with him. But he immediately treats it with rage or anger because as a person, he doesn't know what friends are and what people are. All he knows is his past. Friends, I think, is a lot of it. And I think what you're hitting on is like he has two spaces in his life, his apartment and his workshop. And those are the two spaces that he only will feel any level of comfort in. Um, and everything else in the world is just fucking shit that he can't deal with or wants to deal with. So he can't be himself anywhere but those two places. And then when we ultimately get to where we do at the end, even that has been violated. That's the one, his one sanctuary. Well, because there is no true sanctity in the long run of it. Everything is inside your head. That's the only safety. It's the only place that you can truly go. And as I said, he goes outward. So this whole movie is him going outward, and finally at the end, he destroys everything. All of his quirks, all of his uh, love, you know, he's a, obviously he's a religious man. He can't stand the, the Lord's name being used in vain. One of the last things he even hesitates to destroy looking for possible microphones in his house as a statue. I mean, the great the- watching eye, more paranoia right there. I mean, well, exactly, the yeah. aspect, it's just another, it's the ultimate form of surveillance. Well, that's that's where I was going with it, that he wouldn't even destroy something like the Mother Mary because out of all of his uh, eccentricities, eccentricities, previously because of his job, three people were gruesomely and horrifically harmed and their demise came because of him 100% directly and his work. So he has this big brother fear already because in the eyes of his savior, in the eyes of his uh, redeemer, he has already failed. He already has these uh, sins bearing upon him. So now on top of his world collapsing, he's not only again failed his redeemer, but he's failed his own code of ethics and he's failed his own code of honor. So he completely goes inward after exposing himself. And that's the issue that he exposed himself and went so outward that like a supernova, he blew up and is now just sucking everything well, yeah. in as he's immersed with his own decisions, his choices, his failure, his coping mechanism. This is my job. I go to work every day and this is where I get out of my world. But now your world just collided and has caused uh, such deviance, such what a twist. This movie, this is what fucking M. Night Shyamalan wishes he could twist. This is how that son of a bitch. This is a Aunt Annie's pretzel at the mall. It's so twisted. Well, if you notice, like, even when he is tearing everything down, he violates the one thing he does hold sacred to his heart. He does destroy the Virgin Mary statue because he can't. I mean, the one thing he can't stand more than anything is being taped without his knowledge or permission. Again, it's the one thing the party that sets scene. him off. Yeah, the, the whole party scene. And like because he was having a very intimate moment you where can't he tape exposed the taper, himself. Though. You know, it's that whole mentality of... Uh, uh, damn, I had something and it just... I don't have a good... <laughs> hey, well, I, it, like, I have a thought, but it's do hard to... Do unto others it. and, yeah. like, please don't go. do it to me, basically. Like, I will do whatever I want to, but, yeah, this is the one thing. But the one well, thing I do to everyone else, I can't have done to me. Like, you're you're obviously given an example of his ego to where he gets upset with Stanley um, and, yell, you know, your work's getting sloppy. He thinks he's the best. He makes even the joke when Stanley's telling him about the convention. Oh, he's in the top of the game. Well, yeah, he, you know, he, he told Ford about the fins or whatever. And he, you can tell that he 
is a jealous man, which, you know, the Catholic imagery fits in really, really well, because that's a huge part of Catholicism is just constantly pretty much saying you're sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me do a rosary and do 78 of these. It's not like you say you're sorry to Jesus. You have to sit and say you're sorry 182 times because this guy in a box told you to. So it's this constant you feel bad. You have to feel bad. You have to feel bad because Jesus died for your sins and you've let all of these things happen. You let this happen in New York and now you've moved out here to San Francisco and it's happening again. But the paranoia and the obsession, what we're completely leaving out is the direction it goes in and what the movie's angle, let's even take it into bug Just territory. How it turns is but here's kind the of issue. Well, it, it turns in a, a, a quite amazing and, and fantastic angle. When you apply fanaticism or paranoia or fear to any situation, the end result is is just a volcano. It's always going to be an atomic bomb sort of thing. And like with Bug, this fanaticism and, and this aspect was put into love, which is a, a very apt place to put this reference into because people will fall into love with an idea of somebody, like I said, with Bug, and they'll go crazy for that idea and never the person. And it can go on for years and become you know an awful horrific thing that just never absolutely stops because of ideas and the lack thereof, perhaps. This is a man that is almost entirely built on ideas, and people only know him on ideas, that he's the best, and he's the best at what he does, and he's responsible for all of these things. Now, not everyone knows his dark underside that seems to be somewhat well protected because he doesn't have a personality anymore, that his sins have affected his reality to the point that all he worries about is voyeurism. All he worries about is is God watching and judging. And it's not just God at this point now, it's his peers, it's what's going on in this situation. But his paranoia, his obsession is misled. And that's the issue where people fall in love with the idea of somebody and not actually who they are because it's a complete misled issue that your paranoia and what if they're cheating on me? And you completely destroy yourself. What if they're cheating on me? What well, if they're cheating on me? And what if they aren't? My new piece of evidence you might have, you're turning a whole story in your head and that your paranoia gets to you and you make up an entire universe of what possibly could have happened. And then toward the point you start to believe whatever shit you're spinning to yourself. It's and that's the new where flesh. this goes. Really, what's so interesting about the twist, it's all around him not being able to interpret emotions from a conversation, just listening to the bare bones. Oh, no, wait, I, I got to disagree. I, it's things that are left out. You know, you've well, got, well, at the beginning of the He doesn't have the all movie, the information. He does. Definitely, he, but the inflection he hears. That's the problem. He, he does have it all, and he doesn't want to believe it. And there's a very key line of dialogue between Harrison Ford and Robert Duvall that makes that clear, but... He, at the beginning of the movie, Dig, he has all the tapes, and he sits down with Stanley, and he cues all of them up. So at the party scene, they talk about how he got all of the information that he used. He did three passes with the camera guys, the microphone guys, and then the cop. So he's got all these different tapes, and throughout the entire movie, he's listening to all the different tapes. When he combined them all, 
like a music piece, which is how he considered himself. They all came together. He formatted this piece of all because they tell you, oh, I got 20 percent, 40 percent. I only got 50 percent on this tape. Then he plays them all together at once. And his composition, his his infinite music piece that he's been trying to perfect on his saxophone for years comes together. And he has the cold realization of what's happening, but he doesn't want to come to terms with it. That's even proven. He goes and listens. He hears what happens. Then he insists on going and delivering all of this to the director and Harrison Ford is playing these tapes to the director. And he says, do you want to hear it again? And the director yells at him. You want this to happen. You want this to be true. And then Gene Hackman walks into the shot with this is, I was mentioning earlier, my favorite thing, the jacket, the translucent jacket that slowly begins to define his shell of a person. And finally, all these things come into play. He's known from day one of the job when he got every single tape from Stanley and listened to them, what was going on. But he has been haunted by his previous decisions in life and has not wanted to come to terms with it. He literally let this happen. He could have stopped it. And that's what's fucking haunting him. That's why he has the crazy dream, that Fellini ass dream, which is a great sequence but it's totally Fellini well I, I guess my point is sorry I went off but I had I had some well, it's the it's the connotation of what's said on the tape that he believes one thing is going to happen and we all believe that one thing is going to happen but it's just the inflection of what they said he doesn't have every little morsel of information of what they're saying he just interprets what they're saying to mean this and basically what we find out is that they weren't afraid of being killed by Robert Duvall. They were planning to kill Robert Duvall. And that's the one thing we never considered through this whole film of that's what the where this might possibly be going. You're so focused on redemption. You're so focused and- on them as a couple being murdered by the jealous husband. And that's where Gene oh, see, I think I think you're so focused on Hackman's redemption that you don't look past this. You're given this, you know, like the Godfather, the oranges, or when the gun comes into play, this this focal point of here's the bad. He's responsible pretty much for three people being decapitated, a child even. A fucking family got killed because of this guy. So you've got this big albatross around the guy's neck, and that's what you focus on the entire time. And then you, you're you hoping so much that he's going to come out of this okay. And to me, it clicks over at the end of the movie. He's known the whole time. And the movie takes place in only like a week's period. The first three days of the movie happen, and then he has to meet the director on Sunday. So he's forced to, and honestly, with his silence on this whole matter and his wanting to protect these two people, he probably ended up himself dooming Robert Duvall. Yeah, exactly. So he, that's that's my whole point. He kept silent on this matter because I feel, and I feel it's interpreted and shown to you in the movie, the first day of the job when he collects the tapes and he comes into work with Stanley and Stanley's telling him about the convention. He's listened. He he sets all the tapes up and he listens to it and he listens to it in perfection. And that's where he slowly begins to spiral out of control. He later has a conversation with Harrison Ford where they take the tapes from his house and they tell him we felt you were disturbed. It's because he knows he knows what's going to happen. He knows that they're going to kill Robert Duvall. He's pieced it together. I don't think so 
I think, I don't that, think so at all. I, feel I don't he, think he understands at all. I think he thinks that he Robert Duvall is going to kill them. Well, I think that's where his dream comes into play and to why he tells her about almost dying as a child. And then he yells, you know, he's going to kill you because it's confusion and everything is backward in a dream. Uh, you know, as like, that's why I kept saying it's Fellini like, because that's the whole Italian nouveau French shit. It's it's a dream. So dreams are backwards. So he's telling her all this because he knows what's going to happen in the long run. And that's, he's repressing it. That's why he goes and asks for forgiveness. And he only says to the the priest such useless things. You know, I said the Lord's name in vain three times. He doesn't say what's on his mind because he knows. And that's, you know, it's, uh, we, we completely have taken different paths on this, but it is both. Yeah, I don't think paths. he like, I think he misunderstands what's going on completely. And he thinks Robert Duvall is going to kill them. Cause that's how it's all laid out is, he is going to kill them over this affair. He's he is the big bad. I mean, well, he's like money Bug, man. that's probably the most. Um, but it flips. The aspect. whole thing flips to where it's like, oh shit! Because I mean, he's just assuming Cindy Williams is getting killed in the hotel room. He's looking for two dead bodies when he goes. I see. So, you no, know, I think that's why he freaks out. That he he puts the tap in and he listens to what's going on, and then he comes out I don't of the room. Think he could understand what was going on in the tap, though. See, I think he could. I think he knew exactly what was going on, and he walks outside, and he comes back, and he freaks out, and he regresses almost to a childlike state, and he hides under the blanket. A beautiful, beautiful scene of Gene Hackman hiding under this blanket like a kid. I think it's because he had an idea of what was going to happen. It's happening, and he doesn't want to come to terms with it, and that's why he hides. That's why at the end of the movie, when they're doing the press release, he just stands there, and he doesn't do anything because he knew his time to speak is long gone. He he had an idea, and that's why he was so precisely listening to the tapes in order over and over again. Stanley even says, I thought you gave those back. He had to keep them. He knew there was something wrong. But here's where that doesn't make sense for me, if he knows Robert Duvall is going to be killed if he's having such a problem with someone dying for something he did wouldn't he hand the tapes over to Robert Duvall to warn him to begin with he's not wanting to give him the tapes because he but doesn't want them to get the repercussion of oh they but uh, is it is he the entire movie all he says to Harrison Ford is I had a deal with the director to give him the tapes Harrison Ford gives him the money, offers him the Christmas Christmas cookies in that very awkward sequence, and he insists on taking the tapes back and then leaves out of anger. So did he? Was he keeping the tapes to directly give the director so he could hear and understand no, them? Because he didn't want the two people to get killed. But he sits and he counts his money, and the director says to him, take that outside, take, or, take your money outside, count your money outside, and he stands and says, here are the pictures you wanted. And he walks to his desk, and he gives them to him, and he asks... What are you going to do to them? He's questioning why, what's going on. He knows that things aren't playing out. He's listened to the tapes. He's pieced it together. And he thinks if he goes and kills these people, he knows that they're going to kill him. What are you going to do to her? He wants to know because he doesn't know where his place is anymore. Is he going to be the death of two people or is he going to be the death of one man? He's conflicted of where his nature is as a man in the world is it is it, is it Frederick Forrest and Laverne or Shirley or is it you know Colonel well, Kilgore? Here's where I think that like my version of events gets a little bit more backed up. That as yours definitely makes more sense. Out 
because I mean, you flush the toilet, the amazing toilet scene where it's just completely spotless room. You know, possibly yeah, somebody's long before, um, you know, just and it's a great comparison to The Shining. But long before something like that elevator sequence, this was so elegant. And you have that great contrast of white and Harry slowly backing up and he's got the, the coat on, which you got to remind me, I got this whole thing about the coat. I want to tell these fine listeners about the coat. <laughs> but uh, I'll just but, do it And now. then you have I the feel... flashback of what truthfully happened, and that's Francis Ford Coppola telling us, oh, you thought this was going? This is what happened? No, this is what happened in the motel room the entire time. I don't think Gene Hackman knew either, or we I wouldn't have seen her... that scene. I, think I don't that's think why he, he got... pointed out. I think that's why he got up so upset, and that's why he went to the bathroom, and that's why he put his finger in the bathtub and felt the water that he knew. He was replaying what he knew was going to happen, but um, just to, to shoot it out there. So he wears this coat the entire movie, and it's like a translucent raincoat. And as the movie slowly progresses, it's a part of him. It just looks like a normal jacket. But as he becomes outward and as the seed I reference starts to grow, the coat becomes see-through. And it's almost like the shroud of paranoia that slowly moves around him until you get to the scene I was just describing with the director. And this is one of my favorite shots of all time. He stands up from um, counting his money and he's sitting at this desk and he's looking at photos of the director and the target and realizing what's going to happen. And in my head, he's realizing somebody's going to die and he's not quite sure who. And he stands up and he moves across the desk and the light comes through this jacket. And it's like a, 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 a plastic trench coat you know it's a it's a fucking rain slicker and it shines completely through and you you see how frail and normal he is and that he's just a man and you've got this shot of just his his body all in black and this coat outside of it and you realize that all of these things that he has surrounded himself with his job his his passion with music his identity it's all just this piece that he keeps over him it's armor it's it's essentially not real and that he's just this fragile man questioning reality at this point and he's standing there in this room with this omnius harrison ford character and the director not facing him and his dobermans and it's just this moment of this 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 broken naked man despite you know the shroud over him wondering uh his absolution because i feel at that moment he truly knows that no matter what happens his soul is the one damned because this has happened again. It will happen again. Time is a flat circle. He knows his, his reality. He knows his work will lead to these devious things and he's not willing to, to, to take it. He, he just doesn't want to come to terms and he knows what's going to happen. And ultimately he ends up at his own private hell. His one sanctuary is a ruined mess because now he just has to worry about being surveilled the rest of his life. Well, his kingdom of heaven was invaded. It's gone. He had so his he, privacy. He, had he has no moment. rest now. He is definitely in his own personal hell at the end of the film of just all I've got is my saxophone. I can't even trust my apartment anymore. I like the one thing I hate most in this world is happening to me now. So he does get his basically his come up at the end, even though you like him as a character. He still gets thrown to the pit like anyone else. I think that's the whole point is paranoia sometimes is well perceived. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Were the bugs real? Maybe. Maybe not. Probably not. Was the guy significantly damaged? Did he think the bugs were real? Yeah. Was 
Harry being wiretapped? Absolutely. Was it in his house? Probably not. It was probably some guy across the street. It doesn't matter. At this point, these people are gone. They have spent their entire existence trying to prove that they're not fucked up and that they're not broken and that they're not crazy and that they're not hurt. And then in the long run, they're just either burned to death or left alone playing with their saxophone because there is nothing. Like we asked with Bug, what is the point? Is there anything left over this? No. The director's dead. His wife gets to live the rest of her life knowing the atrocity that she committed. Who cares if Friedrich Forrest gives a shit about it? He went on later to survive Apocalypse Now, so he's fine. <laughs> but you're left with this man, and you're given off the beginning of the movie. I mean, just through his sequences with his girlfriend and the party scene. He was broken before we got to him. He was okay, unhappy. He was way broken. The initial yeah. event of the murders is what broke him, and he's never been the same since. It's just we don't particularly understand that. Until I mean, what does he tell the story throughout the film of like what happened to him? Then we start understanding that he's always been broken this entire film. But what does he tell the chick at the party when he's when they're outside in the parking lot? I mean, he says some devastating things about who he is as a person, and oh, you yeah. get Can you know you ever feel love and all these different even if it's a secret you know uh, you you understand his heartache you understand why he and it doesn't have to be in a religious sense i mean he is represented as a catholic and i think that is heavily represented with the guilt that is involved with being a catholic that it is a religion kind of based or a belief based on a heavy association with guilt and this man's demeanor his his handling of of how his life is is spiraling out of control 100% comes from his guilt and it's just if it wasn't Harrison Ford and the director's wife spying on him it was going to be Christ or God he was still going to uh you know break he was still going to become a a hole and i think that feeds a black into hole. I mean, as Francis Ford Coppola is a Catholic, I think that feeds into a lot of the Catholic guilt um, concept that kind of goes around because Catholics are always looked at as feeling the most guilty because they're the ones who have to go to the church and confess and you have to do punishments and not like eat his body, drink his blood, count the rosary, all this bullshit. And when you throw that in there, again, speaking to how tight this script is and how the story is. That informs who this character is and informs the story that we're telling. All of it is there for a purpose. Him being Catholic isn't just a wasted throw-off idea. It really informs who the character is and why he acts the way he does. And it's not just like, you know, building up. Again, when you go back to Reservoir Dogs, it's just building up kind of fun characters to have. No, everything in this film is informing a um, a character sketch of who this person is, almost like a uh, a treatment of who you want this character to uh, to be, and his whole kind of life story. You can just fill in the rest yourself. You bring up liking Harry, and I think that's coincidental. I think well, that has a lot to do with the fact that he's the protagonist. You spend a lot yeah. of time with him. I think you you watch Harry and so you start to get this attraction to him. But averagely, if this was somebody you just experienced or work with, you would probably have a little bit of disdain Dick. for it. He's yeah, he's a stickler. He's a perfectionist. But, you know, you're exposed to him on a one on one level. So you get to see him 
as I keep saying, grow outward and and understand this onion of a man and to why he is this way. So I think that gives you a, a perception on all characters and all people that, you know, sure, you can encounter somebody at work and you think they're a dick. Maybe they're just really fucked up over some stuff and they're not necessarily a dick, but they don't want you to feel bad for them because that seems to be Harry as, as a guy. He doesn't want sympathy he doesn't want people to acknowledge or even like look at him he just kind of wants to exist and get by and to be a part of this world and then suddenly troll to a certain extent well yeah everybody wants that but i mean and who doesn't completely want to just be able to control their atmosphere and their environment and everything be perfect for you but at the long run he just doesn't want to be looked at because he has been before and he's okay with being whatever and the second they start looking at him the second the uh the whole thing with the guys coming in and and they go to the the convention and he's a part of this he's looked at he doesn't want to be photographed he doesn't want to be seen it's not that he's embarrassed about himself it's that he has no self he is hidden by his shroud his jacket for all intents and purposes and which he never takes off he 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 does not take it off uh, maybe once at the beginning of the movie when he's walking inside um it's part of him. It's this thing he carries over him and his his fear of not even just commitment, but committing to being something outside of a bad person. And he doesn't at, at his core want to be a bad person. He just wants to do his job, play the saxophone and not be a bad person. And that is really relevant with how he treats his girlfriend and how he at least and the long run and the cold dark of night just wants to connect he doesn't want to be alone but he doesn't want to drag anyone down and that's what he he's does he's really scared of connecting he's scared because of he connecting he's dragged people anyone. down you know he's hurt people he doesn't want to do it again but he can't disconnect I think it's also his... a lot with uh, as i spoke about the controller it's like you just can't trust people because people inevitably fuck you over or you will fuck them over so i just don't need but he's the fuck fucker you know like he can't disconnect that he got these three people killed he knows and when the story is told to you it's it's open and closed he is responsible for this he wiretapped some some iffy people and some deaths happened because of it it is on his shoulders he has to wake and sleep with that every single day of his life that is weighing on him and he knows that it doesn't matter you could be hopefully you could be an atheist and still have these feelings it's not god but it's it's right and wrong and causing these emotions and not being able to deal with it so he uses his job and his religion and his music as a crutch to get past and he can't he he just can't get past it well no I, um and i just think a lot of it, also his the way his job is and how much it informs him as a character of somebody who spends his life surveilling people and just the fact that he's terrified of it himself because he knows the extent of where it can go well, look at stanley can. i mean he's like me and you he's just a Don't guy doing his secrets I mean, but Stanley's just a guy like me and you. He's just doing a job. We've been cooks. We've worked at video stores. We've done just about everything. And you do a job to to do a paycheck and you learn how to do it and you do it pretty well. You don't half-ass it. There's no point. If you're going to do a job, you do it successfully and you do it well. I think that's something you and I both have deeply in common and that's what the character does. Does his job very well. And he's inquisitive. If you're working as a cook every single day for five years at a restaurant – Aren't you one day just going to wonder where the meat comes from or something like that? Aren't you just going to have a question? 
So this guy works and and has a, a okay question. He just wants to know where things are going, but the paranoia, the fear, the implication of life and death that is overbearing on, on Harry's shoulder even makes him insensitive to people that truly care about him, that truly want to be in his life, that, that want to make sure that he's okay and, and happy and see him every day because they're colleagues and they work together. And that's a, a normal human relationship. Harry's incapable of that. This man is so broken and, and destitute. He just can't come to terms with it because he knows and I, I, I really feel he knows what's going to happen. I think that's the the twist of the whole movie. He knows. He knows something's going to happen. He just doesn't know who it's going to happen to. He just has it backwards. But what a, a, a even greater example of how great of a movie this is that that we've done a show together for ten years and we both have a completely different idea. And both of them are acceptable. You can look at it my way. You can look at it your way. They're both different and fun. Mine's maybe a little bit more imaginative than yours, but still, you, you can look at this. Direction. <laughs> but this isn't a recent movie. This didn't come out last year. This isn't Jordan Peele. This is a, a pretty archaic movie at this point, and it still can open such a, a wide spectrum of thought, conversation, imagination. To, to bring it back to the beginning of the show, you know, what you look for, what you want out of independent movies, uh, these Toby Hoopers, sometimes it's these early guys. I mean, you, you got to look at this movie, and yes, it's Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, it's the same guy that did The Godfather, but this is when he was shooting from the hip as a kid, when he was filled with dreams and imagination, and I mean, this is such a precise gorgeous movie i will arguably say there is nothing better in the uh in the career of francis ford coppola than this movie this is the fucking know, jack the uh the oh yeah Williams. no that's a good one i like well, especially oh one. no because well you've got the scene when the treehouse falls and that represents jack degressing in age because he feels like an old man and now he's but yeah i i can't keep doing that i'm oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, what happened what happened to Francis Ford Coppola? I just want to make wine now. That's all I care about. Not good wine either. No, I'm really dirt wine. Yeah. Dude, fucking Robert Mondavi makes better wine than you, Francis Ford Coppola. This is turning into an insult show. <laughs> Pulling out all <laughs> He the made one of the greatest movies of all time, but he makes shit wine. Yeah, but he also made The Godfather 3. So, I mean, everybody has faults. And like Martin Scorsese, he's the big talking point right now with The Irishman. Everybody... Ah, it's a return to mafia cinema. There's not been a movie like this for years. Oh, yeah, there has. There's been, dude, Meet the Fockers, all those movies with Robert De Niro being an old moody guy. That's, that's it. There's a uh, story out now that um, the amount of people who started The Irishman and actually finished it on Netflix is very low. Very low. People are like watching about an hour of it, maybe two hours and tuning out because it's almost four hours long. Are you shitting me? The uh, Jimmy Hoffa movie is not like a Jimmy Hoffa story is not that interesting. It's just not. Funnily enough, the the first Jimmy Hoffa movie um, that Oliver Stone made is like, what, five hours. So it is a long story. And I don't think that's the fault. Scorsese at his core makes like long movies. That's what he does. But there's just something missing. And, you know, I it's not even a point that I want to, like, dive into talking about The Irishman because I've seen it and I don't have a thought. I'm, I'm literally at the same place with uh, the house that Jack built on this movie. I get it. I kind of think you're jerking off. 
I, I really kind of hardcore think you guys just wanted to challenge Netflix to see how much fucking money they'd give Joe Pesci, <laughs> which apparently they gave him a lot. But like referencing it again. So you've got Al Pacino in this movie. He's also in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Why do I think the 30 seconds he was in Tarantino's movie was better than the fucking five hours that he was in this one? It's not the makeup. It's not the story. It's not the point. It's what we literally started the show with, this overinflated big chunk of plastic. It's all right to masturbate. I jerk off a lot. Everybody does. It's it's a part of life. But when you do it on camera with some 2,000-foot massive fucking cock, it's boring. It's boring. And there's nothing you can say that's worse than that, that it, it, being boring, being plain, being nondescript – Okay, you got a bunch of awesome people to do an awesome thing. What does it stand for? What What did you fucking care about? You're gonna well, stand up here director, and bitch about Spider Man, but you just you have gave to me be able to look at your film as you're editing it and ask yourself the question: Is this necessary? This is a great scene. It's a great scene, yeah, but, but that's is it not informing an, anything else in the plot or what the story you're you trying gotta, to tell. No, but I like the scene. But there's so much more to it. Gotta than go. That. You got to look at this hierarchy with these gods now that there's final cut, there's director's cut, there's the uh, streaming release, the theatrical release that these guys have uh, gotten to a level of like Greek mythology. The guys like Scorsese are standing at the top of Mount Olympus, throwing lightning bolts down, saying, no, eight hour movies, David Lynch, fucking 18 hour TV show. They have all of these choices because we enamored them and, and loved them and bought their posters and movies and everything to do with it. And we've made them these literal uh, iconic TV gods. And now it's here's my four hour movie. Anna Paquin has one line of dialogue. Isn't that amazing? I guess. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I really I, you do. gave me, me a product, just... but I didn't fucking ask for it. I didn't beg for it. I, I, I Nobody did. You gave us something, and now you're mad that you gave us something, and not everyone's happy about it. I think ah. there's a problem with attention spans. I think people have short attention spans when it comes to two hours. But I think I people have think a four all hour the attention in the world. Guys from New Jersey fucking arguing is a <laughs> is a you know, a bit much. I mean, but like it's you, a TV show and I can binge it and I can just let it play and half pay attention to it the entire time. And I think that's how people prefer to watch movies. Now they don't want to sit down and dedicate. Well, you bring up something. It. I mean, uh, Scorsese <laughs> got his hands dirty with television and he, you know, gave a good effort and it wasn't as well received as it could have been. I really liked, you know, the whole bootlegger thing and Steve Buscemi and I thought it was fun. That's what he wanted to do with the uh, the Irishman, that it was going to be a miniseries sort of thing and it turned into, you know, well I can't do it that way, Netflix is going to give me whatever I want to do because I'm fucking Martin Scorsese and that's good and fine, but is it just the sense that it's Martin Scorsese? Because that's what I'm feeling is that, you know, well hey it's good, it's Scorsese and like I'll defend The Departed. Uh, sure, I, I fucking love it. I think it's a great movie, but this is like apples and oranges. This is a massive, big-dick, casino-style piece. And it's it's neither here nor there what you think of it at this point because the movie is goddamn old people arguing for four hours. That's, that's it. And, uh, you know, you brought up with, you know, does this story have to be told this way? The Jack Nicholson 
uh, one from the 90s. It's a fucking four-hour movie of old people arguing. That is the story. At its, uh, do you paint houses? Uh, are the Irishman at its core is people arguing, and that's what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. So, do you want that? Do you want to sit and watch that? Because if you're like a Sopranos type of guy and you're looking for money and people are collecting and beating the fuck out of people and cutting horse heads off, it's it's old people and they argue. It's just that, and it doesn't stop. If you really want to waste your time. Watch the house that Jack built. (laughs) No, I will steer you clear of that film. Listen to me. I'm the smart one in this equation. Yeah, let me stop talking. Like, you talk for like five minutes and then we're going to end this. (laughs) I don't have anything else to say, Hank. I have zero interest in watching The Irishman. I I just don't. Well, why? Why do you not want to watch it? Let me tell you what I'm getting ready to do. I'm going to watch something stupid like Neon Maniacs on a big screen. That's what I'm doing with my time. That's what I feel is a good use of time. There's the ending of our show. Why do you want to watch that over the Irishman? Because it's 90 minutes and it's got to be more to it. Goofball enjoyment for me because it's a kind of a really poorly strung together horror film with a lot of ideas that don't work. And that's what makes it amazing. Let's end the show with something that I think will connect to the beginning, middle, and end of everything. Let's go back to the Maniac remake. There's something in the the original Maniac movie that encompasses, I think, the purity of what people want. Like, you had reference, I want to make a slasher movie. That's just what I want to do. There's something inside of Maniac at its whole that is pure on all levels. It's sleaze, it's trash, it's almost pornographic. It, it offends massively and then you take the remake and you turn it into this uh artistic piece and you clean it up here's all the things that they meant to show no they meant to show what they they showed this was a fucking indie trash horror movie they showed what they wanted to show when you clean it up and you polish this turd you're given this thick piece of plastic that you can't bite through you can't get through you crack it and there's nothing at the bottom it's hollow and it's just pointless so your big thing here is just you you don't want pointless movies, but where does was Neon Maniac? Where is the soul behind that? And like I have a point and you're gonna get to it, but what do you mean what's the soul behind it? What are you talking about? I don't know. What's the difference between something like Neon Maniac and the house that Jack built? The enjoyment of it comes from the ether as more of like random things happening and getting a product out of it. The house that Jack built was a machine that was put together with no real life put into it. No chance for error and neon maniacs is nothing but air. And that's kind of what's enjoyable about it is just how loose and messy it can be and still be interesting and entertaining and odd. And the house that Jack built is two and a half hours of bland fucking overly shocking murder scenes like uh, some good acting by not Matt even Dillon overly times. shocking um and some stuff like that but it's just we're trying to make a statement that no one cares to hear and i'm just not interested in listening and that's the there is where we're, we're hitting the nail on the hammer in the head it's a story nobody wants to hear it's a message nobody wants to hear it's a product for the sake of of products being placed it's your 37th haunted doll movie it's the same thing every single weekend as to where like bug and the conversation 
truly are the wild cards to use that term. There are no expectations. And did any of it truly happen the way that you thought it happened? Because the story that both of us have told, especially concerning the conversation, are very different things. I have taken a very different thought process on what I feel uh, is the representation of what has happened on this movie than you. And what makes things like this and Bug enjoyable, and especially those last two shots uh, shown in the credits of Bug, is your perception, what you took from it, what you took from this piece, what you allowed yourself to feel. Did you really let it sink in? Did you find the story? And these are two movies at its whole that I don't think you have any option but to become a part of. So like you brought up uh, not being able to break yourself away from this giant big screen and stepping away from it, Bug and The Conversation 100% are two movies you cannot escape from. You become a part of it, there are no walls, and you're horrified the entire time. It doesn't matter if you can relate or uh, adjust or, or identify with what's going on with these characters, no matter what, you're left just questioning everything. And more importantly, you're left in wonderment. I think both of these movies were so accurately uh, shot that you really do have uh, the aspect of what it takes to, to, to make a film. Between set, set design, sound design, uh, f uh, filming the actual movie, uh, the director's presence, the producer's presence, there is so much between all of these movies and their accuracy and how tight they truly are that they are are wonder wonderful pieces. I mean, both of these are very accurate depictions of what a good movie is, in my humble opinion. Sure. Yeah, I think that was about five <laughs> minutes. All right, so that was our second double feature, Bug and the Conversation. Tune in next week where we will do an in-depth conversation about Gilbert Godfrey's entire career, starting with Problem Child. Or Silent Night, Deadly Night. Isn't everybody doing that right now? Isn't that what uh, all podcasts are right now? Oh, yeah. It is Christmas. <laughs> are there any Let's good see what movies? Joe Bob does. I'm sure it's going to suck. If we're going to talk about something being nailed to anything, I want to talk about Bill Pullman's ball sack being nailed to that chair. That's a good movie. <laughs> okay, hey, maybe, Serpent the Rainbow reference. Maybe we can do our Wes Craven show finally. All right, people, so that's it. The conversation, Bug, William Friedkin, Francis Ford Coppola. The ashtray is full. The bottle is empty. <laughs> Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem.